What do you know about nuclear power? How about what happens when something goes wrong at a nuclear power plant? If you're like me, questions like these send your mind racing for memories of the last time you looked at the Wikipedia entries for the disasters at Chernobyl or Fukushima. And maybe your next thought is a flash from some movie you watched in the last few decades. Did you see the Chernobyl miniseries on HBO? The people behind Instagram just released a Twitter competitor called Threads, and that has some people recalling the 1984 British TV movie about nuclear war. Heck, we're just days away from the release of Christopher Nolan's new biopic about J.R. Oppenheimer, so you might be forgiven if your thoughts skip nuclear meltdowns altogether and head straight for visions of bombs and Armageddon. The reason I'm mentioning any of this, of course, is Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is currently occupied by Russian invasion forces. Moscow and Kiev have traded allegations that the other side is planning some kind of diabolical attack on the power station that they warn could cause a major radiological event. In the West, there have been some news reports comparing the dangers at Zaporizhia to major disasters in history. And generally speaking, there's still confusion about what's at stake. So let's talk about the ZNPP and what to expect here as the war in Ukraine drags on. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy folks, welcome back to the show. My name is Kevin Rothrock. I'm the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. This week's show is a few days late because I was busy all weekend finishing our edition's adaptation of a new investigative report just released jointly with MediaZona, where journalists use some of the statistical methodologies that help track Russia's true pandemic death toll. In this new report, we leveraged inheritance claims and mortality trends between men and women to estimate the number of all Russian soldiers killed so far in the invasion of Ukraine. Please visit our website to read that story and look forward to a future episode of The Naked Pravda where I'll dive into those findings. But before getting on with this week's show, please take a moment to listen to this brief message about donating to support Medusa's work. It's now possible for the first time ever for U.S. residents, if you live in the United States, I'm talking to you, to make tax-deductible donations to Medusa, thanks to a partnership with Mother Jones and the Foundation for National Progress. Visit our website for more details, and please tell your friends and colleagues about our crowdfunding campaign and the fact that the Russian authorities are trying to end our work by outlawing Medusa's journalism as undesirable. Now, what that means is Russian nationals who support Medusa and read Medusa and share Medusa's work can face criminal prosecution. And that's why our need for support from people across the globe has never been more important. Okay, on with the show. Last week, Ukrainian President Zelensky warned that the Russian troops occupying the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant have placed objects resembling explosives on some rooftops at the power station, perhaps to simulate an attack on the plant. In other words, Zelensky raised the prospect that Russia may cause a nuclear incident in Ukraine, not by firing warheads, but by turning the Zaporizhia station itself into a weapon. Officials in Moscow have made the opposite allegations, claiming that Ukraine plans to frame Russian troops for an attack on the plant. Meanwhile, inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency are on the ground, but still aren't getting unrestricted access. On July 7th, the IAEA reported that they visited the isolation gate separating the cooling pond from what remains of the Kahovka Reservoir after the destruction of the downstream dam a month ago. They found no leakage from the pond. They've observed 
No visible indications of mines or explosives anywhere inside the plant, but they still haven't been allowed onto the rooftops of reactor units 3 and 4 and parts of the turbine holes. Now, to make sense of these reports and to respond to the panic that this situation provokes, the Naked Pravda welcomes back nuclear arms expert Pavel Podvig, a senior research fellow at the UN Institute for Disarmament Research. He's been on this podcast before to talk about the science of anti-satellite missiles and about arms control agreements between Russia and the United States. I'm very happy to welcome back to the show, Dr. Podvig. Why is it wrong to fear some kind of disaster at the uh, Zaporizhian nuclear power plant in sort of, that's sort of reminiscent of Chernobyl or Fukushima? Because that seems to be like what's animating a lot of the panic. Well, I think there are several reasons, and it's hard to judge them by importance, but basically one is that it is uh, kind of the reactor that is very difficult to damage. So it is enclosed in the containment, which is a concrete shell with the more than one meter thick reinforced concrete walls. So it's a pretty sturdy structure. And uh, the reactor itself is in fact in a vessel. This is the pressurized water reactor. So there is a vessel that actually is made out of steel and it's also a very thick steel. So it is a pretty tough vessel and it's very difficult to damage. So the fuel, the radioactive stuff is inside. So it's hard to get into. And uh, that means, among other things, that if you try to do something from the outside, it's actually very difficult. You need to kind of pierce the containment, and then you need to get to the reactor itself, which is kind of hit in this very big structure. And the vessel itself is actually fairly small. So that's one of the differences from the reactor in Chernobyl, which uh, was a graphite reactor, there was no containment building around it. The active zone was made up of graphite. There was no vessel there. So it was a totally different thing. So that's one thing. The other reason is that the reactors are, we know that they are all in what is known as a cold shutdown. So they, they were stopped, I think in September, and that means that the fuel inside has time to cool down enough. So you don't have this process, which actually evaporates water and then exposes the fuel to the elements. And then the fuel can, if it's hot enough, it can catch fire. And with all the consequences that this may have, which happened in Fukushima, actually, that when they lost cooling system, and uh, that's exactly what happened. They, the reactors were hot and they started evaporating the water. They tried to cool them down, but they were still very hot and eventually. Is it the main danger there that it sends up a plume of smoke that then scatters or? That is part, large part of that, because if you have fire, one thing is that you have all this melted fuel that is very hot and then you have a dispersal mechanism, the fire, all these soothe and all the aerosols, as I understand the cesium is actually becomes evaporized and quickly. So, and you have hot air kind of raising up and finding a way out of that containment. If there is a containment, I mean, or complicated because in Fukushima, basically these products, they found a way out and there were like 
hydrogen explosions and all that, but even without that, the gases are very hard to actually keep inside. So we don't have things like that here. And again, if we look at Chernobyl, for example, there was a fire and the fire, there was those of us who remember, remember there was a plume of smoke. So again, you have a kind of a natural dispersal mechanism. You have the hot air lifting all these fission products and kind of dispersing them. So that is not what could happen in Zaporizhia. And the elements, if the fuel elements are not melted down, if they are still intact, again, these are metal tubes, uh, zirconium mostly. So it's really hard to disperse it. There's an oxide inside, even if you kind of start blowing them up, that won't do you anything really. So it's really hard to disperse them in any significant area. So when you talk about blowing them up, you're talking about an explosion from the inside as opposed to an attack from the outside? Even if you are inside, and even if you kind of put your explosive charge right into the active zone and you just blow it up, you will have a lot of kind of a metal around and some debris, some oxide mixed with the fission products, of course, but that will be meters, tens of meters max. If the containment is intact, then basically nothing will come out. And even if the containment is damaged, still there are no hot gases or there are no inert gases that would escape through that. So it's really, you would create a mess inside of, of the building. Because I've been a bit confused. Obviously, I don't have even a small crumb of your expertise here, but I've been trying to read a bit about the dangers here. And just in the last day, I've seen an article from the American Nuclear Society and their experts say that they can't foresee a situation where any kind of radiation-related health consequences would result from any, even a worst-case scenario at, at the power plant. And then I just saw a different essay by Matthew Bunn at Harvard University, who says that if the Russian troops wanted to contaminate a huge area doing some kind of explosion at the power plant, they could. And he cites the dam explosion and argues that, you know, based on New York Times investigator reporting, that seems to have been a inside explosion. And so let's assume that the Russians can do the same thing here and then they can contaminate a huge area. Like, why is there such a discrepancy here? I'm with the American Nuclear Society here. The experts I talk to, people who know of the reactors much better than I, they also agree that basically it's very difficult, if possible at all, to create a truly serious radioactive accident. Basically, what Matt Bond and I, I I've seen that, that piece, what he seems to suggest is the kind of scenario that I try to describe when you put your explosive charge right inside the reactor in the pressure vessel. And I'm very skeptical again, that that would produce a serious accident. There are more complicated scenarios, spent fuel pool, catching fire and things like that. But that again, it's not very easy to say that. What do you make of the reports that focus on some kind of objects, maybe explosives being placed on, on the rooftops, I guess, of some of the reactor units? Like we have satellite images circulating on social media. What do you think about that? Yes. I've seen the images. I've seen the analysis. Radio Svoboda did a good job. And I think other journalists have done a good job analyzing that too. 
the one thing that immediately comes to mind is, and the one thing that you immediately see that whatever these objects are, they are placed on the roof of the machine hull. So this is a turbine building. It's not the cylinder of the containment. So they are pretty far from the reactor, from the kind of radioactive stuff. So I don't know what they are. I don't know what's the intent of putting them there. But since they are not close to the reactor, I think that they are not that dangerous. Even if they were on the roof of the actual containment, as I said, the containment is a reinforced concrete. I think it's 1.2 meters thick. So it would take a lot of explosives to do anything with that. And again, even then you do only a small part of the job. You create a hole in the structure. And then you need some kind of dispersal mechanism to actually create the radioactive stuff that could go out through that hole. And that is very difficult to do. Another question I had has to do with sort of reading reports and sources when it comes to this, just because a lot of what I have in mind here is trying to help people navigate the various bits of information that are coming out about the subject, both obviously from Moscow and from Kiev, we have conflicting reports, but they're both sort of raising the alarm here. There's been an official, some kind of high-ranking aide to the CEO of, of uh, Ros Ener Ros Energo Adam, yeah. That's the one. And so he's been saying, he's been making claims about ammo with radioactive waste thrown into it somehow. And obviously, I've already mentioned the objects on the rooftop here that are mostly coming from Kiev. When you see this stuff, through what lens are you are you looking at it? Do you assume that each side they kind of benefit from raising the alarm here? Well, first of all, I think we need to clarify one thing that this person who was, I think he's actually some political consultant who maybe worked in some political consultant's capacity in the past. Not a nuclear scientist. He's <laughs> very far from a nuclear scientist as far as you could possibly be. I think he actually, I remember seeing his name in one of the past episodes and he was also saying total nonsense. So I think that what he said this time was also completely insane. Like someone removed spent fuel from some other reactor or, and I mean, spent fuel is pretty radioactive. Right. So you cannot just remove. It sounded it. like he was accusing Ukraine of dipping like a bomb into, yeah. into radioactive waste. What? My concern here is that this issue is politicized and unfortunately it is being politicized by both sides for different reasons, I guess. Probably we can say that Ukrainians certainly believe, feel that they have some benefit from painting Russia as an irresponsible state that can do terrible things like blowing up nuclear power plant, which would be pretty irresponsible. And uh, of course, we know that Russia has done a lot of irresponsible and terrible things in the past, and especially in the last year and a half. I think there might be a feeling, maybe even a calculation that some kind of an accident with radioactive consequences would force the West to do more to support Ukraine. I, it's hard to tell to what extent that is true, but we've seen, for example, some U.S. senators 
saying that if something happens with the nuclear power plant, we should treat this as just as a use of tactical nuclear weapon, which is a totally insane position in my view, because these are totally different events, like in the physical consequences and in political meaning. But you see that kind of occurrence out there and I'm concerned about it. Of course, Russia also probably wants to paint Ukrainians as irresponsible and all that. What I'm concerned is that in this kind of atmosphere, we could have an event. Someone will launch something at the reactors. There will be an explosion. There will be something. Again, I don't believe that the explosion would actually do any significant damage or lead to serious accident, but there would be an event in the fog of war in this kind of a, this is a war zone. It would be very difficult to verify what is that, what kind of red activity, what it is that we see, how dangerous it is. Of course, each side would blame the other side. The Russians would say that this is a false flag. The Ukrainians would say, no, these are Russians doing. And uh, in that sort of confusion, you could see that nobody will win. And I mean, nobody, well, nobody is winning in any sense in this war anyway, but we can see that there will be a lot of accusations. There will be a lot of innuendo, that kind of thing. We've seen that with the Kohopka dad. In the end, we have this event that will damage everyone that will create more tension around all that. And uh, that is unfortunate, not to mention that probably if people will be detecting some radioactivity, which may or may not come from the reactor at all, uh, that was something I I'm really concerned about that we will just end up with this mess. And again, each side blaming the other one and uh, nobody knows exactly what happened and we have real people suffering more than they already have. I wanted to shift gears a little bit and ask you about Russian sort of nuclear talk, I guess, like the rhetoric that we've been seeing, not so much recently from state officials, but from the kind of like punditry. And there was this big surge in in the chatter, it seems, when um, this political analyst, Sergei Karaganov, put out this essay where he argued for first strike, essentially. And then Dmitry Trenin put out another article where he kind of supplemented that argument. It seems like it's been kind of a different moment in that discussion than previous comments from people like Solovyov or even Medvedev kind of making similar things. I wonder, do you view it that way? What does this mean in terms of the kind of evolving rhetoric? Well, it is new, but not quite. One way of reading this whole debate, and especially the Karaganov and Trenin, who or sort of arguing for giving nuclear weapons more of a role and even directly attacking one of NATO states. I think it clearly reflects the frustration that they feel that nuclear weapons are not working for Russia in any real sense. Hmm. And they are trying to find a way to make them work. But then again, if you go back, I think training wrote something like that about a year ago, there was a piece called bring back the fear or something like that. So that was already understood then. Now it's just kind of returning back 
but at the same time, if I were try to be optimistic, which I usually do, I think you could see that even in this kind of a very fairly aggressive, or at least it was read this way, Karaganovs, who actually suggested let's just drop a bomb on, I think he had Poland in mind. Yeah. But if you read it carefully, he was not suggesting doing it, it kind of out of the blue. He said, no, we need to ramp up and we need to tell everyone that we are like really serious about this. And the training actually said something also along these lines. But then you kind of use, if you go and look at what happened in the past year, year and a half, you would see that in the beginning, a lot of people, a lot of states were actually concerned about the presence of nuclear weapons in this war in general, and they were genuinely scared. And so they saw that there is a real kind of a possibility that nuclear weapons will be somehow used. Nobody knew exactly how, but that was, and people actually actively did like that. And you've seen, there were all kinds of statements starting from the parties to the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons and we condemn any and all nuclear threats and going to, there were statements from China, she and Biden made a statement and India, Germany and China. And there was this declaration of the G20 meeting in Bali that said that nuclear threats are inadmissible. So there was a really serious backlash against the very idea of kind of bringing nuclear weapons into this. And that actually did force Russia to kind of uh, tone down the rhetoric and it did disappear. And now you sort of say, okay, so when people were uncertain about what you can do, what Russia can do with nuclear weapons, they were scared and they didn't like it. And they told you they don't like, and now what you are suggesting Karaganov and Trini is that you will go back to them and say, well, you know what, now we're really serious about that. Now we really mean that. And why would they expect that the reaction would be any different? It's very clear that it won't be so. So I think that that's, again, you can see that this is the frustration and all that. And actually, if you, if you read the Russian discussion around those two pieces, there was a pushback in, inside Russia and many experts, many people who do these kind of things. They wrote that basically, no, this is not a good idea of kind of bringing nuclear weapons like that. So in a sense, I came out of this debate kind of more encouraged in a way, because I think that, yes, you have the threats and all that, but in the end, again, people kind of looked at that and they said, no, this is not what we want to do. This is not what we need to do. And I hope that that would kind of percolate to the leadership and to the discussion there. Last question I have for you. Do you, do you think there are actually nuclear weapons in Belarus right now? No, I don't think. Lukashenko said they airlifted them. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't trust this guy. There are many kind of signs that weapons are not there. You may have seen the Hans Christensen and Matt Korda of the um, Federation of American Sciences. Just a few days ago, they published a piece when they looked at the satellite imagery and all these sites where this facility, storage facility might be constructed. And yes, there is some activity there. Are people are working, but it's very far from being an actual facility. 
And I have some hope or maybe trust, I trust in, maybe I shouldn't, but I, I trust some institutions. And I know that the 12th directorate that handles everything related to nuclear weapons, it, it is a fairly conservative organization. They have a, they have a strong institutional culture. And I hope that they would find a way to end up in a situation where nuclear weapons will not be in Belarus. Regarding the, uh, what Lukashenko mentioned just the other day, that they are airlifted again, there are things like institutional culture and you just cannot get around them. And the culture in the 12th directorate is that they don't do airlifts. They just don't. Train is their preferred way of transporting these things. Maybe trucks, long distances are trains. I think there are in the kind of a combat situations, there are some helicopters involved, but airlift, I don't think they have like airplanes to do that, certified to do that. This is why I, I would rather trust my trust in the 12th directorate culture than I would trust Lukashenko. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. If they ever do end up there, if Russian nuclear weapons ever end up in Belarus, does that beyond the obvious, like various political consequences and so on. Does it change militarily anything about the way that these weapons would be used? No, not at all. Even if they will end up there, they of course will be under full control of the Russian personnel, uh, the 12th directorate. This is by the way, how it works in Russia. They control everything there and a pilot or the missile crew would get control of the actual weapon only when it, it is ready to take off, basically. They hold their weapons very, very, very tight. So in that sense, nothing would change in that regard. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.